Welcome to Coach House Talks. And that we'd be able to move forward closer to you. Amen. Andy. Well, that was good. Lovely to see you all. Can I just say thank you to everybody that turned up for the gardening and things yesterday. I know that we were here early and stayed till late. But uh, when you drive round and it all looks nice and welcoming and good, and I know that people worked in the garage with me and did electrics and all kinds of stuff. It was a long day, but it was a good day. Let's just pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, we just sing that we, that we want more. We want more of you, Lord, but not, don't let us be satisfied with what we've got. Don't let us be happy and content with where we find ourselves. Lord, in our hearts, will you instill in us a desire to want you more, to set aside the things of life and to look upon you, the author, the finisher of our salvation. Lord, we give everything to you today. Lord, we want you to take your place, the place of honor. We are here only because of you. And Father, we just ask as we listen, as we spend some time in your word, Father, I just pray that you will, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. But not only speak to us, drive us to action, Lord. Drive us to that place where we are honoring you by what we do and what we say and how we act. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, worship team, um, be warned. You're singing in the middle of this. Okay, because we've just decided. Heads up, okay? I'll try and give you a little bit of warning. So uh, just let me remind you where, where, we, where we're at. So United We Stand is up there on the screen. That's because we are before the exile and King David has brought together the nations or the tribes of Israel under one headship, under the kingship, and it's united this kingdom. Okay, so we live in the United Kingdom. Why do we call it the United Kingdom? Because we've got Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, and we're all together in a united kingdom. Well, so that's what David's done. He's brought all the tribes, all the 12 tribes in their separate entities, and he's brought them together under one kingship. And we've got to remember, I think we're going to ask for the timeline to come up just so we can kind of uh, see where we're at. We're in the middle of kings and chronicles and all of that kind of stuff. So, stuff that's a bit hard to wade through when we get to our Bibles. Um, but they are all pointing towards Jesus. That's our big picture. That's what we want to try and understand. And so we, we need to know a few things. David was a king after God's own heart. Now we struggle with that sometimes, I think, when we know what David did. So we go, how on earth can be a, a man after God's own heart? That's a really odd one. But he united the Israelites uh, into one nation. He moved the capital to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem became known as David's city, and, it's, uh, and he made it his royal capital. Before that, it was Hebron. Uh, and David also desired for a permanent temple to be prepared in Jerusalem as a home for the Ark of the Covenant. So in 1 Chronicles 17, we read these words. When David was settled in his palace, he summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace. 
But the Ark of the Lord's Covenant is out there under a tent. Now, if you remember the story that we told a few weeks ago, the tent had been wrestled back from the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines had sent it back to Israel because it was cursing them. And Israel had gone, fantastic, we got the Ark of the Covenant back, but then we're prepared to leave it on the borders for 20 years. Which doesn't make much sense, does it? And David wanting to build a temple, a permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant, sounds like a good and honourable thing, doesn't it? We just need to pass it by God, right? So Nathan the prophet, now I want you to notice something else as well. Prophets are now speaking hard and fast into what's going on. God's got his messengers speaking to the kings, saying this is what you need to do, this is how you live your life. So Nathan the prophet, we don't know much about him, he just suddenly appears as this prophet to David. Nathan the prophet declares God's words to the king. All right, but I do want you to notice that prophets are now central on the scene and it really goes to show where true power lies. Because we think it's with the king, but it isn't. Because the prophet is delivering God's words to the kings. Okay? So let's make sure we've got the order of things right. And Nathan says this, 1 Chronicles 17, 3 to 6. But that same night... So it's the same night that David said, hey, let's build a temple, let's build a big construct to put the ark in. I think that's a great idea. And he asked Nathan, and I think if you read the, read the whole context of the thing, that Nathan goes, yeah, do what you want. And then Nathan goes to God, and God gives him these words. But that same night, so it's continual, there isn't no gap here. The same night, God said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. You are not one to build a house for me to live in. I have never lived in a house. From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. My home has always been a tent, moving from one place to another in a tabernacle. Yet, not, yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's leaders, the shepherds of my people. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now, you didn't expect that to go there, did you? So this seems very clear to me. But when is a house not a house? Now, let's put it another way. When's a church not a church? When is a church not a church? When is a house not a house? See, we all go, well, church is the building, isn't it? Church, you know, this is how we get sucked into the fact that church is a building. But church is never a building, never was intended to be a building, never will be a building. Church is us, believers, those that belong to God. So God declares and speaks to David, he speaks a covenant to him. Now we know what covenants are, don't we? Because we talked about the covenant that God makes with us time and time again to draw his people back to him. So God declares a covenant with David that a dynasty or a house of kingship over God's people would be established. The house of David. And this is known as the Davidic covenant. Okay, we read about this in 1 Chronicles 17. It carries on from where we just left off a second ago. So God's saying, I don't need a house. You've, I've never asked for a house. Never asked for a beautiful cedar house. And then he goes on to say, 
and he gets his promise to David, I declare that the Lord will build a house for you. A dynasty of kings. For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for me, and I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father, he will be my son, and I will never take my favour from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. That's Saul, and we know what happened to Saul, and it ripped away from him. I will confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time, and his throne will be secure forever. So now I'm a bit confused. David plans for a temple with his son, Solomon, which his son Solomon eventually completes. But God has categorically stated that he does not intend to dwell in a stationary, permanent, fixed dwelling. Because God clearly has other intentions. Come on, are you getting excited yet? I was getting really excited when I was reading this, thinking, you know, God doesn't want to be just pinned pinholed and stuck down in one place. He wants to be everywhere with his church. See, perhaps David and Solomon misunderstood the prophet's words. Maybe they didn't quite get it right. If you read the words, what you'll find is that David goes out of his way. He goes, well, I can't build this temple, so I know what I'll do. I'll, make the, I'll, build the, I'll draw the plans out. Can't get in trouble for that, surely not. Oh, well, that looks good. Now I'll get all the building pieces in place that I need. And he gets, drags them all in from all over the place and he gets them all stored. And he goes, right, I've got all my tick, got my pillars, tick, got my gold, tick, got all the brilliant, tick, 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 got the cement, got all the bricks, got everything I need, tick, 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 there's my plans. But I can't build it. So I'll give it to my son to do it. And he gives it Solomon to build it. Okay? Solomon builds... David's temple. See, we all know it as Solomon's temple. Solomon didn't design it. He didn't even bring the pieces in. David, his father, passed it to him and said, I can't build it. You do it. We've seen similar things before when we look at Scripture. Remember the confusion over King Saul. God did not intend for Israel to have kings over them as he was their king but when they insisted God made a concession with them he said okay if you want a king fine have a king but be aware as he said to Samuel who you, who you are rejecting is me over you and you're going to put kings instead over you and your destiny or how you will be treated, whether you're in blessing or curses, will be decided by whether that king is a good king or a bad king. Remember all of this as we've gone through it? This is the big picture coming out of God's love for us. I think we've got the same thing going on here. God doesn't want a temple, doesn't want a permanent temple. But David desires it. David's planned it and wants it. He's the king, remember. So God concedes. Now with regard to Solomon, he appears to have it all, doesn't he? 
wise King Solomon famously asked for wisdom to discern correctly the will of God in order to govern people well. Okay, he was not just full of wisdom. It was a specific wisdom he asked for because he made lots and lots of mistakes in his life. Lots of them. But he wanted and he asked for the wisdom to discern correctly the will of God in order to govern people well. Now he must have governed people well because actually he governed a united kingdom in peace. They had a peaceful reign when Solomon was king. But the strange thing is God doesn't just answer his prayer. He asks for wisdom. He says, can I have have wisdom please? You can have anything you want, but I have wisdom. And God goes, that's great. I'll give you wisdom. Oh, by the way, before you kind of leave my presence, here's something else. I'm going to give you fame. I'm going to give you riches. And his fame and his wealth spread far and wide. He got additional blessings that he didn't ask for. But because he asked for wisdom, because he asked to know what the heart of God is in order to govern the people well, God's people, God went, thank you for asking for that. That's the right thing to ask for. Oh, and by the way, have fame and wealth as well. Solomon ruled over a united and peaceful nation. The tribes in the north and the tribes in the south united together under one king and peace was the result. It says this in 1 Kings 4, verse 25, During the lifetime of Solomon, all of Judah and Israel lived in peace and safety. And from Dan in the north to Bathsheba in the south, each family had its own home and garden. So we're living fairly prosperous, good times here under Solomon. Known for his wealth and his stature, known for his great wisdom, and renowned for the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon is also responsible for contribution to books in the Bible, like Psalms and Proverbs, which he contributes to, but also for supplying full books such as Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, which we've spent some time looking at. And, I've got to confess, make some of the most puzzling books in Scripture. In fact, Solomon's so kind of out there in some of his teaching, in rabbinic teaching, so what they're teaching in the, in the synagogues, so when the Jews have been taught, It's taught that Solomon wrote in three stages of his life and that they are characterized like this. So this is from the Midrash. And it says this, When a man is young, he composes songs. When he grows older, he makes sententious remarks. Anyone know what that means? Sententious. I had to look it up. I didn't know what it meant. Throw one out there. Anyone know? It's moralizing. Well, it is. It's moralizing in a pompous manner. Okay? And when I read some of the books that he wrote, I go, mm, yeah, I get a bit of that. And when he becomes an old man, he speaks of the vanity of things. And we know what happens to Solomon as he goes through his life. And we know how far he removes himself from God's presence. And I think that this helps us to see as we found out when looking at Ecclesiastes, that earthly wisdom and God's wisdom are two distinct and separate entities and should not be confused. Okay? Every word of this is given by God and is there for our teaching, for our discipline, for our correction. 
which means in here are going to be things that actually people have written down for us to learn from their mistakes. Solomon had plenty of good things going on, right? I'm not dissing Solomon. He had plenty of good things going on, but he was heading for disaster, along with the kingdom that he ruled over. Because what happens to the people depends on what the king is doing, yeah? We remember that. But the clues were always there. He consistently ignores God's instructions. And this is Solomon we're talking about. Consistently ignores, let's try that again, consistently ignores God's instructions. You see, directly before Solomon asked for wisdom in 1 Kings 3, so we all know about Solomon asking for wisdom, and we know the story about how that wisdom was given, we're told a few facts about Solomon just before he asked for wisdom, such as Solomon's married a daughter of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'm not going to make comment on that, says God. I'm just going to put it there before you. Perhaps a throwaway line to us as we read the narrative, but it's important. God's instructed Israel to have no pacts with the kings of foreign lands. Protection, blessing and stability is not founded on military might and alliances, but obedience to God, who is the protection and source of blessing. More than this, Solomon famously had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What on earth was he thinking of? Now, I love my wife. I love my wife absolutely dearly. But do I want 700 of her? <laughs> Probably not. And I don't want to add another 300 that aren't her either. What was he thinking about? But we're told this, you know, uh, I think, you know, there's a scripture, I think, that says he was the wisest man in the world, but, but he had 700. And, it, and again, it's just a line. It's not, there's no comment made on it. God doesn't say, oh, terrible that he did all of these things. It's just a comment that's there in Scripture for us to pick up, use our brains, see what God's speaking to us through, and to put it into context. And several times during Solomon's reign, God had to remind him of the covenant promises made to David, his father. Why? Because all the blessings and favour depended upon it, and Solomon would unfortunately fall back on prosperity and be led into idol worship of false gods by his many wives. The clues of his downfall are there before us all the way through Scripture. Now, before you think I'm kind of having a go at the wives, I'm not. I'm just making a comment that the Bible says. All right? Because I think fellas, husbands, can take their wives away from stuff just as much as wives can. Okay? So I'm not, it's just, I'm making a comment that the Bible says not being sexist. Our existence with the, within the blessing and favour of God is governed by our behaviour and obedience to God's instructions. Even more so now that we've we have a revelation that the real temple that God is building is us. Designed by God to be wherever his people are, just like the tabernacle which travelled with his people. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and we are living 
stones, making up God's holy temple. After Jesus' ministry and the giving of the Holy Spirit, God's real intentions are made clear. Ephesians 2 Verses 20 to 22, it's on our membership booklet. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. You see, I don't think that God ever wanted us to contain his presence within four walls. That we call today church. That was then called a temple. When is a house not a house? When your house is a dynasty, not a building. When is a church not a church? When it becomes the four walls and the buildings we worship in and not the people who are worshippers, who carry God within them. God's presence with us is as it's always been, to show those outside God's love, God's kindness, God's grace, God's forgiveness, and to spur them to jealousy of what we have. Israel, do all these things. Set yourselves apart. Why? So the nations around are jealous of me who is your God. Church. Be church. Why? Because we're there to make those who do not know Jesus jealous of what we've got so they desire to know more about him. And Solomon's failings reveal something of our character to us, I think. We love to be in control. Now we might go, no we don't. Actually, we do. Uh, but it's, it's in various levels. Some people it's very easy to see, they just want control of everything. Other people, not so easy to see, until you kind of squirrel right the way down to what their real desires are. We like to control, we rely on our own protections and our own coverings rather than God's. How many people kind of find a solution to a problem they're in and then prayer is the last one? We all do it. It's not having to go at anybody. We all do it. I've done it many, many times. And it's only when I've exhausted my, I can't do anymore. I've battered the walls down. I've cried and I've kind of, and then you go, hang on a second. I've never once brought this to God yet. And God goes, I've been sat here waiting for you. But that's how it feels, isn't it? We do all of that stuff. We still put me first, even if we dress it up to look like God. Because we do that as well, don't we? Consider some of Solomon's efforts. 1 Kings 6, tail end of verse 38, just before it goes into... Chapter 7, this is what I mean about throwaway verses that we get given and we just need to take them. We go, what's that mean? What's that mean? It says, so it took seven years to build this magnificent temple. Seven years. And he had all of the building plans and he had all of the stuff given to him by David. But the narrative continues straight away in chapter 7. Solomon also built a palace for himself 
And it took him 13 years to finish that one. Hmm. Uh-oh. Who's the splendor really about here? I think we have to see the big picture at work. God wants, us to, dwell, God wants to dwell with us, and he does all he can to correct our daily failings. We, however, continue to build our lives according to our own rules. We can't help ourselves sometimes. Even when we do bow the knee and acknowledge God, we still determine to apply our understanding and our restrictions on it. Yes, God, do this, but please, will you do it like this? We come to God in prayer, don't we? We say, God, I'm, I'm beseeching you. I'm praying, Father, will you do this for me? And will you make it look like this? We do it all the time. Now it should be said that God did come down and dwell in his temple. We are told that God's presence filled it with thick cloud. So much so, we're told, that the priests could not continue their work in the temple because of it. Is that another throwaway line? The priests were doing stuff in the temple and then God's presence comes down and fills it and they go, whoa, I can't do what I'm wanting to do because God's presence is suddenly here. It may not have been God's intention to have a permanent temple. However, the Ark of the Covenant was where he promised to dwell and speak to his people from. So God acted in concession and dwelt in the temple, using it to teach his people how to worship him, which they tragically get wrong time and time and time again. Read prophets, read all of the prophets, or even read some of the Psalms. Time and time again, it's telling you that we did this and we did this and we did this and we did this. And God says, why? Well, I've fasted and I've prayed and I've given you praise. And God goes, why? What is that you're doing? I don't recognize it. That isn't what I asked for. What are you doing? Isaiah 58 is amazing in the context of that. But I'm going to pause. And that's your cue. Come join us. I'm going to pause for a second because I don't want us to miss something. I don't want us to miss the main thrust of what's going on here. God's presence came down in such a manner as the priests could not continue their service. I wonder how much import we put on how we do church. Do we do church in such a way that we leave no room for the presence of God to join us? Do we join together and shut the doors and go, we like it like this, thank you. This is how we want to do church. We want to worship you, but we want to worship you in our way. And I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to shut the door, and I don't want you to kind of impinge on what we're trying to do. You know what song I'm going to ask you to do, don't you? You've already done it once. All right, okay, good. And I had no idea you were singing these songs, so hence we're pausing. We leave no room for the presence of God to come down. The presence of God would stop us in our tracks. If God came into this building now in a pillar or, or in, a, in a cloud of smoke and just entered into this building, I guarantee you we would stop everything. 
We'd stop everything, including the clock. Okay? Everything goes out of the window when God goes, I'm here. Now I want us to bear something in mind. We sing about wanting the presence of God. We say we long for the presence of God. So what happens if the presence of God comes? Do we really want the presence of God? Do we really want him to come and disturb our service? Do we really want him to come and make himself known to us? Do we really want to be just so soaked in his presence that we just can't, we just go and you know what, rules are out of the window. It's about you, God, and nothing else. The sermon is about having God's presence with us and you being the temple that he's building, not the four walls. And as soon as we get that out of our thinking and start understanding that we carry God along with us in the journey of life, we're going to change our perspectives and thoughts on things. So let's sing it. If you want to stay sat, that's fine. If you want to stand up and just declare that, yeah, I want to be in that place where you are, God, then that's fine as well. Stand up. If you want to kneel down, kneel down. If you want to shout out in praise to God, shout out in praise to God. Do whatever God tells you to do when God interrupts our service. Because we're going to ask him to interrupt our service. Okay? I want God's presence here as much as anybody. But it's got to be real. And it's got to be led by the Spirit. So I'm going to ask for the Spirit to come.
going off script. Ever been to a vending machine? You know, one of them vending machines that has the curly things that dispenses your chocolate bars, and you, you are thinking, I want a fancy chocolate bar, a fancy sneaky one. And you put your pennies in. You know, I've got the money in my pocket. I put my pound in, I put my two pound in, put my three pound, whatever it is, nowadays. And then you press your button, and you watch the thing go, and then the chocolate bar just goes, oh, I'm not coming out, I'm just teetering on the end. And we go, hang on a second, I deserve that. I've put my money in, I've done my stuff. I've done everything I need to get that chocolate bar to fall out. Somebody else is going to get that. Somebody else is going to get and I deserve it. Do you see how we sometimes think? We think, oh, we've done all of the stuff we need to do. We've done all the stuff that deserves this. We deserve blessing. We deserve the chocolate bar. Probably stop the analogy there. It probably doesn't go much further. But do you see sometimes we can go, you know what, God, I'm kind of almost determined in my head that you, I deserve you. I deserve the prize. I've put my money in. I've done my penance. I come to church every week and I say my prayers and I read my Bible. Where are you? Where's the prize? Where's the chocolate bar? It's stuck and I can see it, but it's stuck in front of me. And we bang the machine, don't we? And we wobble the machine in the hope that it'll fall out. But it stubbornly refuses to fall. God's presence is not dependent on us feeding money into a servant attitude and saying, well, because I read my Bible and because I pray, because I come to church, because I do all of those things, God, I deserve your presence. God says, I'm going to give you my presence because you don't deserve it. It's like walking up to that machine and going, oh, I could do with a chocolate bar, and then all of them going, without you even reaching out and getting a pound out. Because, you know, Solomon, I want this. Yeah, all right, I've that chocolate bar, and I've this and this as well. God gives us what we don't deserve. Why? Because we can't deserve God. God chases us. The big picture. God chases us. And I believe that God is speaking to us today. I believe he speaks to us as a church, and I believe he's speaking to individuals. And he wants to fulfill your every dream and every concept of who God is in your life. And more. Because we can't ever pigeonhole him. We can't ever put him in a box. We can't ever even go, I'm going to confine you to this temple. Because we are his temple. Now let me be clear here. I'm not saying that building the temple was a sinful act. Okay, before I get a queue of people wanting to take my head off and go, your scripture says this. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that building the temple was a sinful act. God will always, always honour a heart inclined to him. Even if we get it wrong. Okay? And I'm thankful for that because as leader of a church, you kind of go, what if, I do, what if I don't hear from God properly? And what if I get it wrong? What if I say, well, we're going to do this, this and this? And that's not what God intends. Is he going to squat me like a fly? Is he going to take you all down into horrible 
pits of despair because you followed me. God looks at our hearts, and I am really, honestly, truthfully thankful that God looks at our hearts. And that is what this is all about. It's not our actions, it's not our acts, it's our hearts. And if we come to that vending machine and our heart is wanting God to be poured out, then we don't actually have to do anything other than approach it and go, I want more chocolate. (coughs) And God pours out his presence. I do want to say this, though, about the temple. You're going to stand there for a few minutes. You see, the temple became the focal point of everything that goes on from this point onwards. You're forced to come to the temple. You're forced to come to the temple. And I think we're missing what God intends for us. That God's intention is to be with us everywhere we are. The focal point of that temple is so much so in Jewish worship that to this day they are still waiting for the restored temple to be longed for. We're longing for the rebuilding of the temple on the mount in Jerusalem. And God's enemies know that they're inclined to that so much that he gets the enemy to build something on top of it so they can't. For many times the prophets call out Israel for the misunderstanding of the temple worship, as does Jesus in the Gospels. Who does Jesus always pull apart? The Pharisees. And what are the Pharisees doing? Telling you how to come and worship at the temple, how to do it, and adding our laws and our restrictions on top of that. And if you still don't think that there was a problem with the temple, look at what Stephen had to say in the book of Acts. Right? He's put in front of the Jewish high council and they ask him to answer and defend himself. And he has this great big long list of things. He starts in the, right at the back of the start of Jewish history and he works all the way through saying, this is how God tried to act. This is how God tried to act. This is what we did to him. This is what we did. This is how God tried to act. This is what we did. This is how God tried to act. This is what we did. And he finishes with this. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God, against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, wow, this is in front of the Jewish high priests. Okay, however. The Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people. You're heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Ouch. You see, God's intended relationship through the blood sacrifice of Jesus is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the glue that holds our life together. We are the temple of the living God. 
It's intentional that he holds us in hardship. He holds us. God holds us when we go through stuff. It's our strength when we're weak. But it only comes from real relationship. I married Mel and we, he says, the Bible says we become one. And I know what that means. We think like each other. I don't want to do anything that would upset Mel. Mel doesn't want to do anything that would upset me. And God's relationship is, is like that with us. Like marriage is supposed to show what it's like for the church and God. God doesn't want to hurt us. And we shouldn't be intentionally moving away to try and hurt God's feelings. We should be doing what God asks us to do in perfect relationship. We can't bemoan things when God's blessings disappear from our lives and our lives go into tailspins. If we're living according to how we want things to look. We can survive everything that life throws at us. Everything. Now, I don't know everyone's circumstances in this building, but I can tell you this. We can survive any circumstance, anything that is thrown at us, as long as we keep our relationship with God front and central, everything to us through Jesus, and we keep that intact and we keep it strong. This is one of the main threads of the big picture. God wants to have relationship with you. And he has chased you down to put that in place. I want to give you a warning. The later years of Solomon's reign shows what happens when we get it so dreadfully wrong. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, 1 Kings 11, the Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. And yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. That's in Scripture. That's not me making a comment on it. That's what Scripture says. 1 Kings 11 verse 6. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. 1 Kings 11 verses 8 and 9. Solomon built such shrines for all of his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Disobedience never ends well. I'm going to skip a load there because it's not really matter. But I'm going to finish with this. It took Solomon seven years to build his temple and it was destroyed nearly 400 years later taken away. God led people into captivity. The Babylonians came in and <coughs> temple demolished. Jerusalem demolished. This temple, this temple has taken or has been in build for 2,000 years. This temple, this one, not the walls, this one. It's been in build for 2,000 years. And it's going to last forever. It's not going to be destroyed by an enemy. God's not going to lead us in captivity. No enemy is going to come along against this temple, against this church. Because we are living stones knitted together into the temple that God had always designed. 
Was there a temple in Eden? No. Is there a temple in heaven, in Revelation? God is the temple. Okay, yeah, there's a city. It's a city without a temple. God is the temple. I want to encourage you. I want more of God. But my, and my intention for leading this church is that we would want more of God. But there's a warning. Okay, and the warning is this. When we ask God to highlight our lives, it can be uncomfortable. When we say we want more of God, when we want to say, right, we have a complete surrender here, everything is open, it's going to get a bit painful. It's going to get a bit messy. Because God knows what he's building. And he knows what he needs to do with us in order to build it. So it takes an act of courage and it takes an act of faith to step where God is asking you to go. But it's always good. Because God does good things for his people. And he will honour a heart that is seeking after him. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.